0: When life gets complicated, you have to slow things down and keep it simple. Find out how in today's podcast. Hey folks, it's Karen G. from the Tower Hill Communications team. Welcome to our weekly podcast, where we hope today's message inspires you on your continuing faith journey. This week, we're in part five of our sermon series, Louder, where Pastor Jason discusses the key to simplicity. So let's kick it off to him right now. Hey, good morning everyone, Pastor Jason here, so excited you could join us for worship here this morning. If this is your very first time joining us for worship, I pray that it's not your last time, that you'll feel welcome here and you'll feel welcome when you can come in person. We do have in-person services as well. You can just go onto our website, towerhillchurch.org and sign up there. We we have pre-registrations right now. Hopefully, that doesn't have to last that much longer. We're all praying for the end of this crazy season we've all been in, but we'd love to have you come. We'll make you feel right at home. Well, as we get going with this Lenten series, we're about halfway through, maybe a little bit further than halfway through, and I hope it's helping you to hear God's voice over life's noise. That's just the thing, right? Life is noisy. And it's hard to hear anybody, let alone God. Unless we're intentional about it. Unless we take the steps we need to to do what we said last week, the noise abatement procedures. Whatever it takes to kind of dial in and listen and hear God's voice cutting through all the noise. And again, it's not that God can't do that anytime he wants. We're not limiting God's power. It's just that it's always been a partnership with us. He wants us to be open to receive because he's talking all the time. We're just not always listening. So how do we listen well? And maybe this is as good a time or maybe a better time than ever to really focus on that. What would it look like in your life to be able to hear God's voice louder? If you felt like you knew what God wanted you to do, if you could sense God's presence in your life, wouldn't things be better? Even if your situation doesn't change, wouldn't you be different in that situation? course you would. And that's why we're talking about these ancient practices that help us get there. So again, hearing God's voice louder is all about having a predetermined strategy. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to have a close relationship with God. And I think eventually I'll pray and read my Bible. And that's kind of the end of your strategy. It's probably not going to go well, or at least you might not be very consistent, because it takes being intentional to make it happen over time. You need to decide ahead of time. Before the room gets crowded with the noise of life. Figure out how am I going to meet with God? How are we going to do this? How am I going to set time aside? Dedicated time where I can really focus on praying and hearing. Listening. Reading scripture. Devoting myself to some concentrated quality time with God. I mean listen, if God's, God has a love language, I think it's time spent. And that's usually the first thing that gets squeezed out of our busy schedule. So you need a predetermined strategy. And remember the promise. I know we read this every week during the series, and I think it's worth it because we need to remember what the promise is. And that's from Jeremiah 6. The Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's what we're doing. What are the ancient paths? What's the good way? And it's up to you to walk in it. And of course, the promise is rest, actual rest for your soul. So we've been looking at these strategies, these ancient spiritual disciplines, and we've covered a lot of ground so far, right? We talked about prayer, inviting God in, Bible study, God inviting us in. We talked about fasting as a catalyst discipline, and last week we talked about solitude, getting some quiet time before God. And today we're going to continue this, right? We're going to give you another practice and some exercises to follow if you want to dig in and go a little bit deeper. And I want to encourage you to do that. But first I want to ask you a question. Do you even remember what life was like without cell phones? I mean, if you go in the Wayback Machine in your brain, like can you actually get there? I mean, I can, But it's amazing how used to cell phones I've become in a relatively short period of my life. I mean, think about it smartphones weren't even a thing until like 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So it's kind of amazing that we've become so dependent on these devices. And, you know, my kids don't know what it's like to try to get hold of me without a cell phone. And, you know, the joy of going to the payphone. And, you know, you, you put that thing up to your ear and it's like a petri dish of disgustingness. I mean, my kids will never know that joy of putting that thing or like off your ear a little bit or the collect call trick because you don't have any money. So you got to collect call and you be like, uh, can I ask who's calling? Come pick me up, dad. Okay, so I know, <laughs> I know what it is. Like they don't know what life was like when we were dealing with all that before the time of cell phones. And now it's like you're on your phone and you're using it for directions and your GPS and your email and your phone and your internet and everything, so many things. There's so much computing power that's really hard to get your mind around just how different it is. In the late 90s, fascinating, in the late 90s, only one out of five Americans had a cell phone of any kind. One out of five in the late 90s, right? So a little over 20 years ago. What do you think that number is today? Can you guess? Super high, right? 96%. 96% of all Americans, and you're factoring in all generations, right? 96% of Americans have cell phones of one kind or another. That's huge. What a sea change. And listen, we're constantly on these things, aren't we? And if we're honest with ourselves, we're all addicted to them at least a little bit. They've just become such a part of the rhythm of our lives. But I'll promise you this, no matter what cell phone you have, no matter how good it works, you will be persuaded to upgrade. You will. It's just going to happen, right? You're going to see all the features of the new phones coming out. You're like, dang, I want that. This thing makes french fries. I want that one. Like, you think you're done with what a cell phone can do until the next model comes out, and you're like, oh, man, especially if you just bought one. You ever had that feeling? You just buy a new cell phone, and the very next one comes out almost immediately. You're like, what? What happened? I was perfectly happy with this thing a minute ago, and then the new one came out. I'm like, ah, look at all the features that has. (laughs) It's funny, right? When When you actually think about it, we take a perfectly good working smartphone device And we trade it in and pay more money for another new working smartphone device. It's kind of wild, right? But it's just how it works. You'll be persuaded to upgrade. Over time, you won't be as satisfied with your product. And man, this is really what our society is built on in so many ways. I mean, think about it, right? We live in a culture that pushes us to constantly upgrade. Gotta upgrade your stuff. Upgrade your phone, upgrade your car, upgrade your house. We wanna get into relationships, right? It's all about upgrading. And if you kind of take a deep dive into this, when you really see what's going on, I think you'll agree with me. Is that this is an attempt to fill our lives with the best, brightest, most advanced versions of products as an extension and validation of. Of our own lives. There's a wonderful and quite famous quote from economist Victor Lebo in 1955. All the way back in 1955, he said the following Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions and our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. Wow, did he nail it or what? 1955. Victor Lebo, 1955, or maybe Doc Brown. I think Doc Brown. He he must have been from the future to come tell us, because he called it He absolutely called it. We have all intertwined in our need to upgrade. All of this identity stuff swirling around and our own sense of self-worth, spiritual satisfaction. I mean, how many times are you down about something? You think, well, this new product is going to fill that gap. I'm feeling kind of down, so I'm going to go buy this new thing. And you feel great for a little bit. And then you realize that that hole never really went away. It was just covered up for a while. And then you think, well, maybe the next thing, the next upgrade. And you could see how this just continues, and it could continue your whole life without ever stopping and constantly snowballing. My question to you is this today, and I'm not here to just beat up on the fact that we buy stuff, but I think it's worth mentioning because the question is what do you think this is doing to us spiritually? What do you think this is doing to us spiritually? This consumption pattern, this need to buy to fill the void. What do you think is happening on the inside as we do that? Again, I'm not saying buying stuff is bad. But I think there's something bad or something off about that thing in us that feels like we need to constantly upgrade. Jesus, of course, talked about money more than any other subject. Because he knew the kind of grip that this consumption and money can have on our lives. And if that's gripping us, it's awful hard for us to allow ourselves to be gripped by God. Well, let's see what Jesus says right here from Matthew chapter 6. He says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven Where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's one of those most profound statements in Scripture, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp, is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. And here it is. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus was great at getting right right to it, right to the difficult matter naming the elephant in the room and in this case that elephant is wealth it's money he knows that we all need it to survive in one way or another and whether you have a lot of it or you have none of it you run the risk of obsessing over it you don't have a lot of money it's always about all the money you don't have and how am I going to get more if you have a lot of money but how am I going to keep it how am I going to get more Either way, it kind of runs the same risk of running things. And this is really the bottom line of what Jesus is saying. Jesus believes that a fixation on money and possessions is a sign of a spiritual problem. It's a sign that you're trying to fill a God-shaped hole in your life with stuff. So why is that a problem? Because it competes with God for our hearts. You might say, well, I don't know. How, I don't know, Pastor. I don't know if I'm with you on that one. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. So instead of trusting in God's faithfulness, we tend to trust in our own resources. Oh, uh, I hope this happens in my life. What do I need to do to make sure that I get there? And that's not in and of itself bad, but we quickly squeeze God out. And the more resources you have, the more you just kind of want to trust in what you can do. You don't trust in what God can do, because that seems really hard. It seems a lot easier to trust in what you can do. And that works great until it doesn't, until it fails, until it it falls short. And then you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? I feel so far from God, this thing didn't work out. Or maybe, well, God didn't deliver that for me. Well, no, 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 you were never relying on God to begin with. You were relying on you. It competes for your heart in such a way that it's easy to devote your heart to an obsession with money or stuff. Because, I mean, listen, those are the things you can see. It's hard with God, right? Because you can't always see him. You could feel him. You could experience him. You could see his movement. What was that Billy Graham saying years ago? It's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. But it's not quite as tangible as money, right, that relationship with God. But Jesus knew that about us, and that's why he's calling us out. That's why he's making a point of making a point. Because the problem is the desire to constantly upgrade means we are never content with what we've been given. I think there's the real issue there. You ever notice that? If you always want to upgrade something, what's that mean? It means you're not content with what you have. And that becomes very quickly... A spiritual problem. And if you let that go too long, you're going to discover that you are far from God and wondering how it happened. I think it's important to say this, though. Money isn't inherently evil, but its power easily entangles. Right? I mean, you know, the saying, money is the root of all evil, but it's not all evil. I know a lot of really generous people, a lot of people of faith, where they just don't have this issue with money. It's not a barrier for them. In fact, it would be so disingenuous for, I I mean, it's like whenever a church says it, you know, money is evil, but make sure you give some to us. (laughs) We'll we'll take care of your money for you, because it's so evil, we'll take it. (laughs) It just seems kind of ridiculous. No, but man, it can really easily entangle, and the more you have, the more it can potentially do that. How do I know? Well, just look at Jesus' example in Scripture. Jesus had this interaction with the rich young ruler, as he's called, in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you remember the story or remember the interaction, it was really powerful. And many of us look at that story and we're just like, wow, how could that rich young ruler basically deny Jesus? But when we get into it, I I don't know, I kind of get it. I can sympathize with the rich young ruler. Basically, he said, I've followed everything that you've taught. I've done everything, but I'm not quite there yet. What do I need to do? What's the thing I need to do to really follow you? Jesus tells him he's got to sell his possessions. And then, uh, you know, he says, is there anything else I can, No, he doesn't say that. But he's certainly thinking it because he decides it's too much. I can't follow. If I've got to sell all my stuff, I've just got too much, too much to lose, and I can't follow you. And that's what Jesus famously says. It's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. And there's some cultural things in there where it might not be a literal thing to say he's going through the eye of a needle. Um, but, but the point is the same, that it is very, very difficult for somebody who has so much to enter the kingdom of God because they're not going to want to let go. And letting go of that stuff doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to take a vow of poverty. But what it does mean is you're, is you're willing to allow God to leverage whatever you have for his kingdom's purpose. And not everyone's good with that. It becomes a barrier. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Let me put it to you this way, quite simply. You can't hear God's voice louder if money is your first priority. You just can't. Because that means God is at least second. And what do we learn from scripture? If God's anything but first, our priorities are messed up. Things aren't gonna work right. It's like a machine that's miscalibrated. It's not gonna make the widget properly. The constant need to upgrade reflects a heart that cannot be content with God. Think about it. If you're always looking for not not what God's given you, but what, what is God gonna give you next? not being grateful for the blessings that you have? Again, what's that doing to your heart? This incessant need to upgrade. And the thing is, we, we got everything working against us. All the gravitational pull of culture is working against us. But Jesus gives us some words of hope. He says, okay, now that, now that you've heard this, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. He says the following. He continues, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you buy worrying at a single hour to your life? That's one of my personal favorite verses right there. What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Did you catch that at the end? Seek what? Seek first his righteousness. And what? What? All these things will be given to you as well. He's going to take care of your needs. And money is a part of taking care of your needs. But don't seek that first. When you do, you got things out of order. Things aren't going to work right. When you seek God first, everything falls into place. You probably know this is true just from your experience. When you have felt close to God in your life, and maybe some of you, you're watching now, and you're like, I don't know that I've ever felt that. It's okay. I think God will help you to feel that. But for many of you, when you have felt close to God, everything else kind of works better. I don't think life is better or situations magically remedy themselves, but you're a better you as you arrive at the life in front of you. So this is a long way. We're getting to this at the end. What's the spiritual practice? What are we talking about here? Here's one. It's the ancient spiritual practice of simplicity. Yeah, it's actually a spiritual practice. An ancient one, taboo. It's a way of saying, I own things, but they don't own me. My first love is God. I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will remain other things. I want to make sure that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. God first. Everything else next. I want to land this in just a couple of quick examples. Because sometimes it's like, well, simplicity. What's that really mean? I'm going to unpack it a little. I want to give you a couple examples, though. The first is one of my favorite Christian artists of all time, Rich Mullins, who died, unfortunately, young in a car accident. Uh, always inspired me with his songwriting. He he seemed to be writing songs and living faith on a deeper level. He was very much into uh, Franciscan spiritual practices. He he wasn't Catholic, but he was a, a real devotee to spiritual disciplines, and he felt that he needed to live a simple life at the height of his fame. So he was a songwriter first for Amy Grant, he wrote very famous songs. He wrote uh, Sing Your Praise to the Lord, which he sang as a huge hit. Uh, he wrote Awesome God,"s probably his most famous, even though I don't know that that was his favorite. It just turned into the, the worship song of youth groups all across the country where they sang Awesome God for at least 15 years. And uh, that's, that's probably what he was most famous for. But at the height of his fame and uh, status in early Christian music, He decided to take a vow of poverty. And he took, uh, he put together a board of pastors and friends and said, Here's the thing all this wealth that is coming my way, I want you to make sure it gets to the people who need it the most. And just pay me uh, an average working person's salary. And he moved from Nashville to a Navajo reservation to help. Uh, teach English and teach kids about music and the love of God and so he spent uh, that rest of his life on the reservation trying to bring the kingdom of God to the Navajo nation it was really powerful story and he he gave up the status that he had worked so hard for because he felt like God's kingdom was calling him to do something else I think uh, another example is my friend Mark, who, you know, back when I was in uh, college and a brand new Christian, and when you're in college, you have no money and your car's always busted. So well, at least mine was, and I needed to get home for a weekend. And he said, "Just take my car." Like, what are you talking about? You're broke too. <laughs> we both got we both got cars that are constantly in need of repair. He's like, "Just take it. You need it this weekend. You go and take it." And I'll never forget that, that act of generosity. And it reminded me of what it should look like for all of us in our relationship with our stuff. I remember he said, it's just a car. You need it more than I do. Man, I still feel like I'm chasing a relationship with things the way that he had. But I feel like that's an example of what living in the discipline of simplicity looks like. There's a great book that I want to point you to as we talk more about this topic. It's Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. It's got a lot of these spiritual disciplines in it that we've been talking about. And this is really a classic. This is a foundational book that would be great to add to your library. And in it, he talks about 10 ways of cultivating this practice of simplicity. I'm not going to go through all 10 here, but we do have all 10 Uh, Posted online. So, where you see this message, there'll be a link for the spiritual practices that we've been doing every week, and I'll have all 10 there suggestions on how you can cultivate more simplicity in your life. It'll also be in the devotion that comes out tomorrow as well. There'll be a link to it there too. But I wanted to share with you just the first three of the 10 to give you an idea, to get the ball rolling on some ideas of how you can practice simplicity. Because let me just say this, let me just name the elephant in the room. We live in one of the most prosperous parts of the country. We have people that have a lot. We are, by global standards, some of the richest people in the world. Our attachment to stuff probably can use some further examination. So don't shy away from this topic. Embrace it. Face it head on. You may be surprised at what the Lord does in you and through you and to you as a result. So here are the first three of this that I thought we'd get to. The first is buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. I love it because that's just really practical, right? And it doesn't mean you can never upgrade your phone. Like, I don't want you to feel guilty, <laughs> right? It's not about guilt. You feel guilty because you, you had to upgrade your phone. That's not it. It's are you doing it to fulfill some kind of need you have on the inside? Or are you doing it because of its usefulness or some of the features that you need? That's just something to think about, right? The second is this. Reject anything that's producing an addiction in you. I think that's, that's great and difficult advice, right? Anything that's producing an addiction. That's a great filter. What's the third one? The third one is develop a habit of giving things away. A habit of giving things away. It loosens your grip on your possessions helps you think about being generous intentionally. Maybe there are some things in this that really speak to you. I pray that you'll pick one of them this week and just work on it. Pray to God about it. Work on it. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. And I promise you, if you do that enough, you will start to hear God's voice louder. Amen. Amen.